0: Welcome to Music for Life, exploring the purpose and value of music to humanity's enrichment. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is a 1941 recording of Duke Ellington and his famous orchestra performing Take the A-Train, and it's from the swing era of the music of the United States and on today's episode we are going to explore the 20th century American musical invention known as jazz We had an episode on this last season, but it was tied to a pre-concert talk and back when the show was in a two-hour format. So I wanted to reformat and repackage the material to serve as a regular episode and one that fits into the one-hour format of this season. In both our Sounds of Scripture and Classroom Corner segments, we will explore improvisation and spontaneity in both the biblical record and in the classroom. So today on Music for Life, the jazz element reprise. Music for Life is largely a classical or fine art-based music appreciation program which I know sounds a little like school, but in each episode I try to give some insight into some of the musical or historical nuances of particular compositions to help us all appreciate more some of history's greatest musical accomplishments. Some of the material comes from the music appreciation course that I teach each spring semester to the sophomores here at Herbert W. Armstrong College, where our studios are based. That class is mostly focused on the fine art music as well. My thinking is if you can learn what things to listen for and appreciate about these historically significant pieces of music, then you can apply those same principles to learning how to appreciate any kind of music, whether it be fine art, popular, or folk. For that class, for that course, nearly every lecture focuses on the sweep of music history from the fine art tradition. But then at the end of each semester, while in the heart of discussing the music of the 20th century, I veer off the classical path for one lecture and talk about the popular idiom known as jazz. Jazz has its own set of eras within the 20th century uh, that are different from the main classical eras that we talk about. Now, I realize that putting jazz in the popular tradition isn't necessarily accurate either. There are some elements that jazz shares with fine art music, sometimes in terms of the quality of composition and the kind of training required to perform it. There are some very cerebral things about it that are, like classical music, important to know in order to fully appreciate this particular art form. So that's why I spend a whole lecture on it, at least, in my predominantly classical course. So I figured I should do the same with this program. So let's spend some time talking about the history of jazz. Before we get into that fully, I want to present two of our regular segments on this show. A key component of the jazz style is that of improvisation and spontaneity. And this will be the focus of both our Sounds of Scripture segment and our Classroom Corner segment. First, let's have a brief classroom corner segment. This is where we explore different methods and curricula for introducing young people to music. At its most basic definition, improvisation in music is the spontaneous performance or composition of a piece or section without much prior planning. In the classroom, this method of making music can be a means for students to explore or express their own musical ideas, The principle of either spontaneity or thinking outside the box carries over into their study of many other subjects—science, art, or even math. In improvisation, students analyze their choices and decide whether or not they work, a process which can require a great deal of concentration. To quote former president of the American Orff-Schulwerk Association, Jane Frazee, when students learn musical improvisation, they are given personal agency and ownership of their musical encounters. The Orff method was mentioned when we discussed the use of folk music in education. We discussed Karl Orff's use of folk music in his music education efforts. And since he was also a proponent of improvisation in the classroom, the Orff method, as it's called, incorporates this element too. But there is another method that also heavily incorporates improvisation in the classroom, and that is the Dalcroze method, D-A-L-C-R-O-Z-E. According to Emil Dalcroze, improvisation helps a child internalize concepts like pitch, rhythm, tone, and patterns by doing something that they do naturally, play, sing, and dance, without the challenge of reading music notation. Through improvisation, Composing music becomes a natural act and they are able to carry their skills into daily life. Through musical improvisation, a child can learn to relate to and understand music better. This has been Classroom Corner.
1: re mi do A a female dear A drop of golden sun Me, 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 me A name I call myself
0: You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today's show is titled The Jazz Element, and we are exploring the history of jazz, this 20th century American musical invention. Now let's stay on this theme of improvisation and move into our Sounds of Scripture segment where we survey the Bible's many references to music for a longer-sweeping historical perspective on our episode's theme. All music, no matter how notated, contains principles of spontaneity and at least some improvisation. The Hebrew culture and its records were certainly not just the result of oral tradition— The biblical record makes common reference to the books that certain canonical authors used to flesh out their histories of the kings and prophets of ancient Israel. The same would have been true of the musical culture. The lyrics of many of these sacred songs have survived due to the biblical record preserving them, but there is enough evidence that the music was also written down. Moses was told to write down a song before he died so that it would be remembered decades into Israel's history. Jeremiah wrote his lamentations on Josiah's death that were performed many decades later in the time of Ezra. But to whatever extent a piece of music is written down, there are certain elements that are left to the spontaneity of the performance. Even if a composer writes out every note there will be slight differences from performance to performance. If the composer just writes out the melody and the basic chordal structure to go along with it, as in much of jazz, then certainly there would be a lot more improvisation and spontaneity in each performance. The principle of spontaneity in music is endorsed in the Bible. On a slightly related note, the Bible condones new music, singing a new song, David said God put a new song in his mouth. Job said God gave him songs in the night. This isn't necessarily improvisation, but a biblical acknowledgement of inspiration coming externally to the musician. Though the Hebrew culture made use of the written record, certainly the advent of the printing press and ability to make multiple copies of music was centuries away. So the music was likely an exciting combination of both documentation and improvisation. This has been Sounds of Scripture. You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today's show is titled The Jazz Element, and we are exploring the history of jazz, this 20th century American musical invention. So let's get more into the actual history and development of jazz now. Now, there might be a fair bit of controversy over some of the specifics of the history of jazz, particularly its origins, but there is some general agreement on the overall flow of this history and its particular eras, and I'll try to stick with the most generally accepted history here. First, in the lecture for my music appreciation students, I always like to quote this definition in Webster's of the word jazz. American music developed especially from ragtime and blues and characterized by propulsive syncopated rhythms, polyphonic ensemble playing, varying degrees of improvisation, and often deliberate distortions of pitch and timbre. Also, it means empty talk, humbug, similar but unspecified things, stuff. So, it's a very general word, and also the roots of jazz are also varied, We generally talk about an amalgamation of three cultural influences, though, when it comes to the birth of jazz. It's a melting pot of, number one, white European sources, marches, hymns, popular dances of the late 18th century, two, Creole and Caribbean influences, and three, the stirring rhythms and performance techniques derived from black Africa, as well as the folk songs of the newly emancipated African Americans after the Civil War. That latter influence came partly out of the folk style known as blues. Blues eventually developed into a form of entertainment. Without getting too technical, blues is characterized musically by blue notes, uh, lowered thirds, lowered sevenths, that sound bent, tired, or worried, and by a particular chord progression that has been used in everything from Big Mama Thornton's You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog to Tracy Chapman's Give Me One Reason. Around the time that blues was developing, there was another early manifestation of jazz known as ragtime. The melodic material generally contained syncopated rhythms known as ragged time over a steady military march-like beat, what we might call a boom-chuck accompaniment. Boom-chuck, boom-chuck, boom-chuck. Ragtime's heyday was the latter 1890s to the end of the First World War. It was predominantly piano music, and its most famous composer was Scott Joplin, who lived from 1868 to 1917. His most famous composition was made popular by the soundtrack to the 1973 film The Sting. Here's a little bit of The Entertainer. musical style of Ragtime was predominantly featured in the Tony Award-winning Broadway musical of the same name. The musical style was the embodiment of and the connecting thread between the story's three major plot lines, which are set in 1906. Easy to remember the year that the musical is set, because in the prologue the characters talk about the crime of the century. But the punchline to that phrase is that it's only 1906, and there were 94 years to go. Here's the end of the opening prologue of Ragtime, which embodies many of the musical elements prevalent in this musical style. By the end of World War I, the center of jazz had been New Orleans, Louisiana. Some say that when the federal government shut down the CD Storyville district of New Orleans in 1917, that that's when many great musicians moved to Chicago. Chicago had a larger population, better recording opportunities for burgeoning jazz musicians, and one such musician who moved north was Louis Armstrong, nicknamed Satchmo. He became well known for his trumpet playing and his unique vocal quality. Which may be known to you by the tune What a Wonderful World.
2: And I think to myself, What
0: a wonderful world. After ragtime, the earlier styles of jazz, as seen in New Orleans and Chicago, were characterized by small ensembles known as combos. Usually these were comprised of trumpet, clarinet, trombone, and rhythm section. Rhythm section implies three instruments, drums, of course, piano or guitar or banjo, and bass or tuba. The term applied to all early jazz of this nature was Dixieland. A modern jazz musician who arranges a lot of his music in this vintage New Orleans Dixieland style is a New Orleans-bred pianist and vocalist, Harry Connick Jr. Here's what he does with the classic Mary Poppins tune, A Spoonful of Sugar, putting it in a strict Dixieland combo format, trumpet, trombone, and rhythm section. In every job that must be
1: done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun and snap the jobs again. And every task you undertake becomes a piece of cake, a lark. A spree, it's very clear to see that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. The medicine go down. Medicine go down. Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. In a most delightful way. A robin feather in his nest has very little time to rest. While gathering his bits of twine and twig, though quite intent in his pursuit, he has a merry tune to toot. He knows a song will move the job along. For a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Medicine go down. Medicine go down. Just a spoonful of sugar helps. The medicine go down in a most delightful way. That fetch the nectar from the flowers to the
3: cone.
1: Never tire of buzzing to and fro, no Because they take a little nip from every flower that they sip And hence they find their task is not a grind For a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down The medicine go down, medicine go down just a spoonful of sugar, help the medicine go down in a most delightful way. Yes,
0: yeah, in a most delightful way. You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today's show is titled The Jazz Element, and we are exploring the history of jazz, this 20th century American musical invention. That was a spoonful of sugar from Harry Connick Jr.'s album Songs I Heard. It was an example of a Dixieland arrangement, an era of early American jazz that had its heyday in the 20s, in New Orleans primarily, and secondarily Chicago. It was characterized by these small ensembles we call combos. At this time, the general public largely ignored and even deplored the Dixieland styles of jazz from these cities, dismissing it as too wild, loud, or raucous. But this had a lot to do with the fact that the atmosphere where this kind of music was being played was distasteful to the middle-class, mainstream American. But some musicians found value in this kind of music and were trying to find ways to package it to the common man, so to speak. One man named Paul Whiteman, wrote out jazzy arrangements of popular, even classical pieces, to help mainstream this new jazz sound. The musicians in these bands were required to improvise very little, but good arrangers wrote the music to sound improvised, and though it was arguably not real jazz, it did bring jazz more into public favor. This kind of written-out jazz was known as sweet jazz, And while the mainstream middle class was accepting this sweet jazz, other musicians were starting to add instruments to their combos, and this all culminated in a style known as the big band era, which had its heyday in the 30s and early 40s. Now the phrase big band is pretty loose because the bands weren't really, really big in terms of like an orchestral size. It was about 8 to 12 players, which is more than it was in Dixieland days, of course. Over time, the bands would become even bigger, though, and the orchestration more lush and accessible to a wide audience. It came to be known as a combination of a few saxophones, a few trumpets, a couple trombones, piano, tuba, banjo or guitar, and drums. The big band style was also called swing. Sometimes when people refer to the big band era, they say the swing era. Music of the swing era was characterized by swung eighth notes. Hopefully I can explain this simply. If you know anything about music, you probably know that two eighth notes comprise a quarter note, and the quarter note is usually given the value of one beat. So two eighth notes divide the beat evenly. One and two and three and four and. Swung eighth notes extend the length of the first half of the beat or the first of the two eighth notes. One and two and three and four and. So if a symbol were to divide the beat into two even parts, it would sound like this. But if it were to swing the eighths, it would sound like this. There is so much great music from this era. We heard some Duke Ellington at the top of the show. There was also Benny Goodman, the King of Swing, Glenn Miller, Artie Shaw, Fletcher Henderson, Tommy Dorsey, and of course, Count Basie. Here's Count Basie on the piano with his big band performing, Basie. That was Basie, performed by Count Basie and his orchestra. We talked earlier about a lot of music around this time being written out, known as sweet arrangements or sweet jazz. But you also heard a lot of improvisation in that previous number. The term applied to improvised music was hot jazz. Of course, in the big band era, with that many musicians playing at once, a lot of things had to be written out. But then there could be large sections where it could be left up to a soloist to improvise over the framework playing in the background. So the swing era, or the big band era, brought together the best of both worlds, the best of the written-out side of music, and the best of the improvised side. It was the best of sweet and hot. In fact, you may know those two terms from the famous song, It Don't Mean a Thing. If It Ain't Got That Swing. In that song, the singer says, makes no difference if it's sweet or hot. And that's referring to whether the music is written out exactly or whether it's improvised. Let's hear the legendary jazz vocalist Mel Torme sing this tune. Vocalists joining along with big bands was pretty common beginning in the 1930s. What's remarkable about Mel Torme in this recording, and really any recording of his, is his remarkable scatting. As discussed in a previous episode, this is where the singer improvises or sings on nonsense syllables to imitate the sounds of instruments in the band.
2: Now here is the thing that Duke was always on about, that thing called swing.
0: So enjoy It Don't Mean a Thing If It Ain't Got That Swing with Mel Torme.
2: Don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Don't mean a thing All you got to do is swing Makes no difference If it's sweet or hot Give that rhythm everything You've got It don't mean a thing If it ain't got that swing Oh John Cogliani at the piano. John Lightham on bass, John Lightham. Don't <laughs> did did do do did 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 Whoo-whoa-whoa-whoa-whoa-whoa-whoa-whoa, <music> Na, makes no difference if it's sweet or hot. Give that rhythm everything you got. Don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. shoot a do da 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 ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da but do buy and do love buy do love do the cha ba do biddim diddin diddin do Da <laughs> da Doo doo doo
0: You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today's show is titled The Jazz Element, and we are exploring the history of this 20th century American musical invention. That was Mel Torme singing his arrangement of It Don't Mean a Thing If It Ain't Got That Swing from the album Live at Michael's Pub. And it was an example of a vocalist working closely with a big band. After the big band or swing era, in the early 1940s and into the 50s came another era in American jazz. It was a reaction against the swing era. Some of the musicians of the day were seeing this music as being homogenized and mainstreamed at the expense of some of the art form. Jazz was losing some of its virtue, they argued, as it was too easily duplicatable or canned in its big band form. So they went back to Earlier forms of jazz in the sense of more improvisation, more virtuosity, and smaller combos. Maybe a trumpet, saxophone, and a rhythm section. So tight, difficult music, virtuosic music emerged. More complex melodies, harmonies, uh, irregular phrase length, irregular rhythms. And as my music history professor would say, their music was essentially saying, try to imitate this. <laughs> This era of jazz became known as Bebop. Bebop had many great historic figures, but the two that stand out were nicknamed Bird and Dizzy. Dizzy referred to an iconic American trumpet player, Dizzy Gillespie, who is iconic because he played his trumpet with unusually large, puffed-out cheeks and with his trumpet bell bent upwards into the air. Bird referred to Birdman Charlie Parker, a famous saxophone player of the day. Later on, trumpet player Miles Davis would say that you could sum up the history of jazz in four words, Louis Armstrong, Charlie Parker. Here's Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie, or Bird and Dizzy, in one of their most famous collaborations, Salt Peanuts, which are the lyrics applied to the quick, difficult octave jumps in this tune.
3: Salt peanuts, salt peanuts. Salt peanuts, salt peanuts. Salt peanuts, salt peanuts. So peanuts, salt peanuts. Salt peanuts, salt peanuts.
0: Was Salt Peanuts performed by Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker? And it was an example from the bebop era of jazz, a highly virtuosic form of jazz that was a reaction against some of the arguably overprocessed music of the swing era. But other musicians started to react against the complexity of bebop. This movement or this era became known as cool jazz. Its main figure was trumpeter Miles Davis. Cool jazz favored the smoother sounds of symphonic instruments, sometimes it incorporated flutes, horns, oboes, and cellos. Looking for more simplicity after the era of bebop, Miles Davis came up with this tune known as Boplicity. Boplicity by Miles Davis, and it was a representation of cool jazz, the era that followed bebop, and was a reaction against the irregular rhythms, complex harmonies, and some of the virtuosic improvisation of bebop. After cool jazz came an era known as free jazz, a saxophonist by the name of John Coltrane, who had worked with Miles Davis, was its main pioneer. This came about in the 1960s, and it incorporated more dissonance, uh, was quite a bit more avant-garde than anything before it, but John Coltrane came to be known as one of the great jazz figures of the 20th century. In 2007, the Turtle Island Quartet released its album, A Love Supreme, The Legacy of John Coltrane. The Turtle Island Quartet is a string quartet in the traditional classical sense of two violins, viola, and cello, but it's purely a jazz ensemble. Enjoy their rendition of this Coltrane classic, Moments Notice. You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. In today's episode, we have explored the history of jazz, this 20th century American musical invention. That was a traditionally classical grouping of instruments, a string quartet, but one that performs in the jazz style, the Turtle Island Quartet, performing John Coltrane's Moment's Notice. And that will conclude our brief overview of jazz history in the 20th century. If you've heard any of our episodes before, you know that each program of Music for Life ends with dessert, where we hear an example from the popular or folk tradition to end the program. Now, since this program is all about the popular tradition of jazz, I thought I would end with a more classical form of dessert in this case, showing the jazz influence on classical composers. The impact of jazz on fine art composers throughout the 20th century is quite substantial, and there would be too many composers to list here. But most notably, composers like George Gershwin, William Grant Still, Aaron Copland, and Igor Stravinsky incorporated jazz elements into their fine art compositions. Here is a piece that Igor Stravinsky wrote for the Paul Whiteman Band, it doesn't sound jazzy in the traditional sense, but writing for a jazz band gives it such a unique sound because of the instrumentation being so different from the standard orchestra. Also, the length of the piece was impacted by this style, as it had to fit on a 78 RPM record. So this is Igor Stravinsky's Scherzo a la Russe for jazz band, performed by members of the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, with Simon Rattle conducting.